Welcome to another episode of Season 2 of the Panjway Podcast. As always, you can find our episodes on all podcast platforms, as well as YouTube and Facebook for the video episodes. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button on your platform of choice, and if you enjoy what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice five-star review. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at The Panjway Podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store, so if you head over to thepanjwaypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise, and who knows what might come down the pipeline. So remember, on all three platforms, that's The Panjway Podcast, P-A-N-J-W-A-I Podcast. Thank you. Well, you know, there's the there's the thirty year cycle, which is this theory that every thirty years, and there's there's a, of course there's like a ten and a twenty year cycle too, but every thirty years there's a reemergence of fashions and trends and things like that from these so the people's childhood so that people who grew up in the 90s are now in in positions of power and decision making and so they are the fashion designers and the movie makers and things like that that's why we're seeing the big bump in this like 80s and 90s style it's a real that's a real thing man like so at the meps you know all these kids are coming through trying Mm -hmm. to start their military careers they're 18 17 18 19 and this kid came through a couple of days ago with a Carolina Charlotte uh, or Charlotte uh, Hornets jacket on with yeah. a, uh, the pink and the teal yeah. and, and the, the white. <laughs> and it's made out of like windbreaker material. And I'm like, yeah. what, the f- what the fuck? I saw that. Last time I saw that coat was like sixth grade. Yeah. But, and it was well, brand new and he paid $80 for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you remember when we were like high school age, the 70s thing, like the bell bottoms and the big yeah. floral stuff and like that was kind of. Uh, back in style for a few years there so there's something to it and the good yeah. news is the 80s are next so yeah. the 80s was a good i mean music and uh yeah and musically and fashion wise yeah yeah can't complain <laughs> no can't complain <laughs> that's what america's head's best you know it really was you know nintendo was brand new <laughs> nintendo was new we yeah. could interfere with the affairs of foreign governments and actual secrecy and it wasn't being tweeted <laughs> all over the internet we could take over countries like I don't know, Guam, El Salvador. <laughs> as El long Salvador. as it wasn't the Soviet Union acting like an asshole, the world didn't care. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we caught, We took over like three countries in the 80s. No one even knows about it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Good old days. Uh, Allowed, uh, you know, Mexico to become a narco state. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> same to Colombia, you know. Big, big help from the CIA there, too. Yeah. More than yeah. just allowed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gently nudged next to Mexico into an arco state. <laughs> yeah. Took the power uh, out of the Colombians' hands. Thanks, Nate. True. Reagan. We're on drugs. Temporarily. Yeah, well. We're rip. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of wars that never end. Good <laughs> 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 <Your> transition. <laughs> so, actually, in this episode, we're sitting here with uh, Doc Brandon Rudy, who is who was our senior medic for the company at Spearman Guard 2012. And uh, so, yeah, he's jumped back on here to kind of 
give us another perspective on things in Spare One Guard back then that maybe we can't really do given our limitations. And so, Brandon, we always kind of open these things by giving you kind of an opportunity to give us your elevator speech. You know, basically your background, why you chose to join the Army, why you chose to become a medic, uh, and kind of the, the, the short path that led you to, uh, to being the lead medic at Cop Spare One Guard. All right. Uh, so, uh, before I joined the Army, I was working as a meat cutter in a grocery store. Uh, I've been married a couple years. Uh, we were expecting our third child. And uh, actually, the Army was the last branch of choice for me. I tried to tried to go Navy and uh, ended up failing the, uh, the drug test for marijuana. So, they kind of booted me, you know, and after that, I went to the Marine Corps and they were like, you got too many kids. And the Air Force was like, the Navy didn't want you. We don't want you either. But the army was like, "Yeah, we'll take you. You're going to Iraq." <laughs> so, come on in, man. That is a common theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the funny thing was, you know, I was tired of going home covered in blood uh, every day, and mm. then I became a medic. So, <laughs> uh, I tried to become a, a helicopter pilot, and you know, the army couldn't pass the uh, the colorblind test. I have a red green deficiency, and they were like, "You can be a medic, though." And the funny thing about that is we bleed red and we wear green uniforms. So mm. <laughs> didn't make a whole lot of sense to me there either. But I ended up becoming a medic, uh, went off to uh, the basic NAIT, then went to Fort Stewart, deployed with, to Iraq with a 2-7 infantry, came back uh, and then went over to 164. Not quite a PCS, but uh, you know it was a, a change of uh, sure. scenery. And then from 164, you know, went, you guys know the rest of the story. Parts of it. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you mentioned the colorblindness thing because Alex Berner told us the same thing. He he failed his colorblindness test and they gave him... What did they give? They offered him uh, medic or... It was something else. It was like like Apache, like flight planner. It was like basically a flight operations guy. It's like both things that require you to have color. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad he chose medic. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like, I, I loved our flight ops guys. They really helped us out, but they don't do anything. It's a horrible job. Really? Mm. They're just radio bitches, and it sucks. And all they do is stand there <laughs> is hand out radios and night vision goggles to the pilots. They just sit in like a a room all the time. It's, it's, a, it's a thankless job. But I thank you guys for what you did for making sure that we could accomplish our mission. But I hope that you move on to other things. Yeah, for uh, sure. But yeah, so I mean, you you got to experience that two seven deployment that uh, I think immediately followed Luke's deployment, and uh, you know Tom Evans was on that deployment too, and it was from what I understood that was kind of the same vibe as Luke's deployment. It was yeah, pretty pretty, pretty benign, violent less. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> so there was you know one one IED that went off um, in our vicinity. We we treated a civilian. Actually, my partner medic treated uh, that guy in. Uh, other than that, it was it was quiet. You know, we were closing up fobs and moving to Baghdad uh, about halfway through the deployment, and this was going into the transition into New Dawn. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we kind of fell like the our Afghanistan deployment kind of fell conveniently in between two of those phases. <clears throat> you know, because the unit after us in Afghanistan, they they were closing down fobs and they were doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and Luke and Brandon, your previous deployments, you were closing down fobs and doing yeah, things man. like. The time like we, we were in Afghanistan was kind of the last, last big push. Last last time frame in Afghanistan where combat against the Taliban was the actual priority. Yeah, um, for sure. To whatever degree that it was actually a priority, but it's kind yeah. of interesting how that, that kind of times out. So you you were with us previous to the the issuing of the orders of going to Afghanistan. 
uh, you went with us or went with Luke <laughs> to NTC. I was just wasn't I wasn't even a twinkle in one six four's eye. Um, what what were you hearing as you got to NTC about what was going to be coming down the pipe and how that affect your the decisions within the medic platoon about where the medics were going to go as far as companies and cops and stuff. Uh, so going going into NTC, I don't remember hearing a whole lot about what we were going to do the first week. Uh, I think it was about halfway through we started hearing about uh, us deploying to Panjway and the the sort of things we would expect there, especially with the IEDs. Um, so yeah, you know, it was all training up until that point, and then it was kind of like after you started hearing where you're going to go, it was kind of an oh shit moment, and uh, from there just started trying to. I think try to wrap my my mind around it. I didn't really at NTC plan too much for what was going to happen in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It was more like right before we left, uh, you know, a couple months before we left to actually go, that we were myself and uh, you know, Salvador and Burner. Uh, usually it was us three just trying to come up with schemes to like be better medics while we were out there, and we had no idea what the fuck we were doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were trying to modify litters and shit in my backyard and, and just doing weird, weird shit that as an E5, you know, senior line medic, it just didn't have the experience to prepare for that. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a, a exceptional group of medics uh, at Spurwangar and I imagine they couldn't have been by accident. You know, you take a, you take a platoon of medics in a, an infantry battalion or an armor battalion like you're bound to have some, you know, your, your normal range of competency, you know, it's kind of like a bell curve, right? A couple shit bags, lots of pretty decent people. A few stand out, you know, really good guys, a few guys that are above average. And then a few guys that are just like, you know, you know, the, the greatest thing to ever happen to 68 whiskey. Um, how did it end up that we kind of got that, that front half of the bell curve? Yeah. So, uh, you know, talking with you guys before, just, uh, Super thankful for how much support I got from the uh, medical platoon leadership. Uh, you know, after NTC, went to them and they pretty much let me handpick uh, who I wanted to take with me. So, you know, being allowed to to take burner, to take uh, to grab Doan later on, to to snatch up um, Salvador and and bring them to Afghanistan with us was a, a blessing. And then even later on, after we had been, you know, more than halfway through the deployment, uh, the medical platoon pushing Todd to us and, you know, just getting that, uh, the best of the best, I think, uh, that, that was, that was a, a game changer, I think, in the survivability of our guys out there. Yeah. And I, I, speaking for me, at least the, the competency of, of our medics was never in, was never in doubt for us. And what we appreciated about our medics, and maybe this is against the Geneva Convention, but but they were gunslingers, man. They they were not afraid to get in a gunfight. Yeah. They were like I've and I've I've met medics like yeah. I, when I'm in combat, I just strap my M4 to my backpack. I don't even touch it. I'm like, what are you doing? But our guys were like, no, man. I'm, I'm you know they they really embodied you know tactical casualty care, which is hey, you got to finish the fight first. Um, I think most of the the uh, engagements that we saw, you guys, especially the platoon saw out there, you'd see the medics out there refilling their ammo, just like the the eleven Bravos. They definitely oh, yeah. were not afraid to throw rounds down range. Yeah, which you know you always include Doc. Like Doc is a grunt. You do not call yeah. Doc a pogue. You don't yeah. even <laughs> don't do it. 
but it's even easier to call him a fellow grunt when you see him out there just like Doc Salvador, just like, <laughs> you, motherfucker! <laughs> yeah, and that's pretty much how he'd say it, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was that's a pretty good impression, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, man. I mean, it's it's good for us to look up and see people because when, you know, unless they, unless they're, uh, you know, their medical care is immediately needed, get a gun in the fight. And it was always cool to kind of have that connection with our medics for sure. Because mm-hmm. they were, you know, another big thing about our line medics and, you know, I kind of like for you to speak to this a little bit, Brandon, is like they went on every single patrol. So like three, we got breaks, but guys like Sal and Burner, they were out there every freaking day, no matter what was going on. So, you know, that's a huge, that's a huge ask of those guys. Yeah. You know, they never complained about it either. I will throw that out there. They, um, they didn't complain and they didn't, the, the few breaks that I could give them, they never asked for. I think they handed over some of their patrols to me reluctantly because, you know, as we talked about before, they owned you guys, you were, you were theirs and you belonged to them and, you know, they wanted to go out there and take care of y'all. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, what, what kind of heads up did you have? Cause I mean, you were in charge of all the mix. So it's, it's your job to tell them to prepare them for what kind of injuries they might be facing going into their AO. I mean, what were you getting before the deployment, either from the previous unit or even when we got there? Like what, what kind of heads up were you getting about what to expect? The majority of the stuff that I heard about was, um, just amputations, which, you know, obviously we saw a lot of, uh, that was pretty much it. And you can only prep on a tourniquet with so much. I mean, you guys do it as CLS as well. Yeah. So every th- you just try to hit that that whole spectrum. So, yeah, you're going to expect amputations. But we we kind of practice to treat everything ima- imaginable. And I think I think we did did pretty good job of it before we got out there. Yeah. Were we prepared 100%? Hell no. There was no way you could have been. But uh, those guys... They got some pretty good training. We did some, hopefully Pete is not listening, but we did some live, live tissue labs and mm-hmm. were able to go out there and do that before going out to deployment. So that helped a lot too. Well, we're not very political on this podcast, but we can universally <laughs> say fuck Peter. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. I think it's, uh, it's apolitical. I enjoy uh, beef and chicken and even chicken breasts, which are very similar to uh slightly removed human calf apparently (laughs) (laughs) and bacon of course i mean Peter can't be american if they don't like bacon yeah right so uh, again (laughs) fuck Peter. um (laughs) you heard it here first (laughs) you heard it here first pandemic podcast says fuck Peter. um You know, I, it was interesting when we talked to Ber, uh, Burner, and it's kind of cool we talked to two of the medics close to each other because we get to like you know uh, throw things back and forth off against each other while it's still fresh. Is uh, mm-hmm. you know he was talking about how, how his experience with IEDs in Iraq and his deployment, his very first deployment, was like dudes just pink mist, just completely just getting ev- evaporated by these massive IEDs. Um, and I know for me, like when they told us it was a high IED area, that's where my mind went. I was like, oh my god, I'm just gonna step on an IED and I'm gonna disappear. Um, I, I wasn't prepared for how complex injuries would be from something as minuscule as a five or six pound IED. Um, was that something that you had come to expect as well? Like those, those single, like the simple kind of below the knee amputations, or were you expecting more complex, you know, double, triple amputation kind of situations? So, you know, I told you guys before the, um, a couple of the guys in the medical platoon called me doom and gloom because, you know, I went to the platoon sergeant and said, Hey, I need the best medics and, 
you know, all the equipment, like the newest, best medical equipment you can give me. And uh, we need our own time to train. You need to only leave us with, with the infantry company while we're, while we're still here. Like no medical platoon bullshit. Like, so I was definitely always preparing for the worst. And, you know, that pink mist situation uh, is, you know, one of the, your worst nightmares, you know, somebody stepping on a cheese wheel and just disappearing. And that was kind of always what we thought in, I think we were arrogant enough to think that we'd be able to save you anyway, but, uh, yeah, that's what we, we plan for. We appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's what we plan for. And, you know, quad and triple ampu- amputations are kind of what you expected. And we were fortunate enough and I know it's kind of shitty to say, but to only have single and doubles in, in a lot of cases, we, we were very unlucky with the uh, the rate of IEDs out there, but we were fortunate with how small some of them were. Yeah, and that's uh, I think that was if you find a silver lining in it, it's that um, they no longer had the ability to have access to all those Russian munitions, and they were having to build their own explosives. So mm-hmm. yeah. suddenly, it's a it's a treasured and valued resource that they can't just afford to throw 150 pound IEDs together. And yeah, I, I was thankful for that personally. Yeah. I know we joked around me and Clark before he got his like blown off. It's like <laughs> five pounds or less, five pounds or less. We're good. It's <laughs> a five pounder. You know, I'm going to keep my knees and it'll be okay. <laughs> uh, what about the unit that we replaced? Did they give you like did the medics there give you any kind of like handover where they were like, Nope, we're out of here. Bye. Good luck. No, they gave us a, a handover. It wasn't, it wasn't as much as I would have liked. So when we got in there, it was more focused on vector control, uh, sanitation, you know, making sure that your, our water was uh, drinkable. Sure. And, and well, I guess we weren't really drinking that. We had bottled water, but that we could use it for showers. Um, and just, I don't know, the layout the layout of the aid station, which we changed all together. Sure. You know, as soon as Captain Cathrell came in, we, we made our own thing work, and then we continued to refine it throughout the deployment. So mm-hmm. the handout was okay. It w- You know, there were things things that we could have done better, uh, but there were things that I could have done better when I handed off to. Again, I was an inexperienced uh, sergeant, um, and the guy that handed off to me was an inexperienced sergeant. So you can only expect but so much. Like those handovers, I mean, you can tell people all day what what to expect. Yeah, um, everyone approaches a problem with their own biases. So, you know, you can tell them, "Hey, you do it this way. We've been doing it like this, and it's been working. We tried it this way, and it doesn't work." And they, but they've been training this one way for this deployment for six months, and there's no way they're just going to not do what they trained for. Yeah. Um. So I mean, we were guilty of it too. You know, the unit that replaced us was guilty. Everybody does it. It is a hundred percent across the board. Nobody listens to the unit before that. Yeah. <laughs> like they failed here, but I'm better than they are, so I'll do right. it better. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, all those guys know what they're talking about. Yeah. And then finally, three months later, you're like, they were right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. We. Uh, I don't dog them out too bad, but. The unit that replaced us, I overheard their CEO, like, it was right before we left, like, maybe even just a few hours before we left. He had all his guys, like, in a little cluster, and it was their Advon party, maybe, or his NCOs, and he was like, giving a motivational speech, and he's like, we're going to take back the roads, and I was just like, oh, man, it's like these poor bastards, you know, <laughs> and uh, we yeah. told him, we drilled it into their heads, like, don't take the roads, and I got a story about that very last patrol. 
That makes me mad, but I'll save it for a different day. <laughs> yeah. you, you've told it. You told that story. No, oh, did I? Okay. Yeah, how you clear, how you painstakingly cleared a path across the road and told mm-hmm. everyone not to go on it, and you look back and they're all just up and down the road. Yeah. That was a hard lesson for us to learn too. To stop walking on the roads, like it's so tempting. Like, like it's. I just have to follow that little path, and I get where I want to go. It's right there. I mean, they kind of kind of seemed like they felt like they knew better. On that last mission too, that guy that caught that round in the helmet, I mean they're they're kind of out away from <clears throat> the security that we had set up and kind of peeking their head around shit. And then mm-hmm. you catch a you know you catch a round in the helmet. Well, that was yeah. actually our EOD guy. He'd been there for months. <laughs> <laughs> no, the uh, the guy that caught the round in the helmet was one of the. It was uh, Aaron Korea. He was one of the EOD guys. Really, I thought he was one of the other guys. Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> But the, the UD guys are pretty aggressive, too. They like to get into fights, probably more than they should have. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. But I can't fault them. I love those Definitely guys. makes a, a medic nervous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. It's like, God, could you just like do your job and not? <laughs> Please. No, stomping around. <laughs> Stay safe. Yeah. Don't get shot. Oh, you mentioned Captain Cottrell, and that's one thing we've, we've mentioned in the past, that uh, we had a PA on the comp, which... Yeah, um, I'm, and the more I kind of speak to people from other units, uh, that was pretty unusual for us to have a PA at a cop. Um, at least, let me take it back through our little scope. You know, most cops in Iraq did not have a PA. No, uh, but from what I understand, a lot of cops in Afghanistan did, just because of the differences in the terrain and accessibility and stuff like that. Yeah, so I mean, doctrinally, you know, you'll have your uh, battalion aid station guys. You're usually your platoon sergeant and your uh main aid station or forward aid station set up at a FOB. Um, at a cop, you're not going to... I mean, we had an aid station too. I mean, we had uh, all the medications we needed. We had two trauma tables. We had a triage area and we had a huge SLZ. So to have all that on top of a PA, I think was unusual. And we were very, we were fortunate and I think it's a testament to how serious... Uh, you know the people that were handling the logistics above us took mm-hmm. took the situation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was a, it was a great asset for us because he was also kind of removed, even though he was an officer and a captain and all stuff. He was kind of a good sounding board for us, and he would kind of pull us aside sometimes, and just kind of be like, "Hey, man, how's things going?" and checking in on people's mental health. And so, yeah, he was he was really solid in that role, and he he did a good job supporting our company in that regard. Yeah, he was a uh, he was. Not only was he an officer, but he was a former infantryman. He was a former. He was in Ranger Regiment before he switched over to become a PA. Yep. So not only could he was he totally qualified on the medical side, but he had an insight on the infantry side um, that even most of us didn't have. And so mm-hmm. I'm very grateful that we had him, especially like you said, with the, when it comes to the mental health stuff, um, because he was able to kind of guide us a little bit, like to be on uh, equal rank with Captain Kitching and and have be have that kind of sounding board up there, like, hey, these guys need a day. Like it's smart to give him a day, you know. That was, I think, that was a great benefit. Because if he had just been a straight PA, he wouldn't have had that kind of um, respect. I've never met a PA. Well, I had never met a PA like him before, and I haven't met one since. Mm. We were, I mean, not just having the PA. We were fortunate, but having him specifically. Yeah. Uh, and he did the same same thing with the medics. He could sit down and talk to them and and make them feel better as well. And it was—it never felt like a mental health thing. It never felt like you were talking to a captain. It felt like you were talking to somebody 
who had been in the trenches or was in the trenches with you, even though he didn't necessarily always go out, you never felt like he wasn't part of that team. Right. So mm-hmm. we were very fortunate. Yeah, for sure. And you, I mean, you got to work with him enough that you guys kind of developed you know, a good, solid working relationship, right? Uh, he was my best friend in Afghanistan, man. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we lived together. We, you know, we, there were two rooms in that aid station. Uh, bring somebody in that uh, lost both their legs, and you work on them together, and then you go sit down and play Super Smash Brothers and bullshit. Like it was just transitioning from one thing to the next, and it was never uncomfortable. And yeah, I was very myself. I was fortunate to have him there as well. Yeah, cool. Well, that's another thing we kind of wanted to ask you about was, you know, a large portion of your job was administrative in nature as the as the chief medic. Um, so, you know, you're, you have your, your line medics that are in the platoons and they're usually the ones going out on missions and you're managing them directly. Um, but you're also, you also have responsibilities in the aid station. Um, and that's a lot of stuff we didn't get to see a lot because if we were out doing missions, you know, if they brought a local national or a policeman into the the aid station, we wouldn't even know about it unless we happened to come back while they were there. Um, so you tell us a little bit about what it was like running the aid station on Spurwangar, what kind of things you were you were seeing there. Yes, yeah, so I, so I kind of spoke to you earlier. is a lot of just constantly refining uh, things. And I hate to say it, but you kind of use the local nationals and the A&P and A&A to, to practice so that when you had your guys come up, you could do it perfect. Um, and that's not to say we didn't do the best that we could on those guys because none of the medics, myself or Captain Cathrell, ever thought that one life was more valuable than another. They would bring in guys. A lot of times you guys would be out on mission. Sometimes it would be later at night. Um, it, it would be weird, you know, because you get a knock on the door and it, it could be Grace coming in and asking, you know, for some Tylenol. It could be St- Stefan coming in and asking if we want to play Axis and Allies or it could be three guys holding another dude with no legs, you know, it was, so it was a weird situation, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, like I said, we just, we use those, those times to, to make it better for y'all when y'all showed up and needed the help. Now, most of those that came in, were they, were they civilians or were they, uh, like police and army? There were quite a few kids that would show up, um, that would step on the, the damn IEDs they would, they would put out, uh, because the A and A cop was right there. A lot of them would come with an escort and they would ask, you know, to have something more medical than trauma uh, looked at. So, we, you know, like a skin condition or the idiots hadn't eaten or drank anything in seven days and they're wondering why they have they can't walk. But, uh, you know, sometimes it was pe- kids with no legs and sometimes it was a guy that just wanted some Tylenol or had an STD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should clarify most of those were probably Afghan. Yeah, those were asking. Yeah, the um, the American soldiers never came with any STDs. <laughs> if they ever caught any from each other, they never told me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of a unique position in that you know, like I said, you were on the base, you were there as the as a senior medic, so you know you covered down for your guys sometimes, but you also said your guys basically told you not. Like I said, they had ownership over their platoon, so they wanted to go out with them. But because you were the medic, when something like that came on to the base, the rest of us, if we're saying, you know, we're hanging out and all of a sudden we hear a truck roll up and it's full of AOP that got fucked up, we don't, we don't have to do anything. You know, we, we can remove ourselves from the trauma. But you guys, drama. you guys did do stuff. You guys always came and helped carry guys through the HLZ. So it wasn't, yeah, there were like four or five medics on the cop, but 
it was a company of medics when the time called for it. Yeah. So one of the things that you guys talked about, the medics throwing uh, rounds downrange, well, we felt the same way about y'all because you guys were always willing to carry, to wrap up, to treat. Um, and I know we're going to get into braises here in a little bit, but I had help there. I had help with uh, all the injuries that I've seen. I've had help from 11 Bravos. It wasn't just always medics there. So sometimes, huh. yeah, they would bring in patients and you guys didn't know they were there. But if y'all knew they were there, I'd have to tell people to get out of the fucking aid station. Like, dude, mm-hmm. we, we need space. You got to go. Mm-hmm. That's well, a good point. I mean, there's all I can think of several instances. I, I, in fact, I can think of zero instances where a medic was working on a casualty by themselves. Yeah, me too. You know, not not one. Um, yep. You know, I can think of several where there was no medic <laughs> um, that was available to work on some. Well, only one situation like that, but uh, or when the medic had to be worked on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good point, and I we've mentioned it in an earlier episode, but we thought that our pre-deployment CLS training uh, was phenomenal. Like I, I as a brand new private straight out of basic training, I felt absolutely confident that if the person next to me lost their leg, that I knew what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big push that I, you know, did with the uh, medics, but mostly it came from, you know, Captain Kitchen. I remember having a long conversation with him. He's like, train these Bravos. Like they need to know how to do CLS. And as you know, inexperienced E5, you know, the company commander is telling you to do something, you do it. But if he hadn't, I don't think our CLS program would have been as good as it was. Mm-hmm. So, well, when yeah. I went back through CLS again in 2017, it was a joke. It was it was an absolute joke. I mean, and I didn't even get a CLS <laughs> certificate when I pre-deployed to Afghanistan in 2012. We just we just did the training. Yeah, mm-hmm. we just did it either before Afghanistan or some of it was while we were in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the most valuable was while we were in Afghanistan because I was brand new. Um, but when we did it in JBLM in 2017, I was, I was laughing. I was like, what do you, <laughs> they, they would go through all these things and trying to make it this like smoker of a 40 hour course and doing like, oh, you got to do a low crawl. I want you to do this. I'm like, how about you just treat these guys, how to treat the most basic injuries correctly and try to tell them to do 20 things that they're never going to be allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way that that guy's going to do an NPD, like never. Ever, ever, or I'm sorry, NCD. He's never going to do an NCD. He, like, I don't know. That was just my opinion. It was that it was complete garbage, and we made sure that that was in the feedback. You know, and the, the 68 Whiskeys saw the same tra- type training in uh, Table 8s. So it's like, you know, you got these staff sergeants that are running these courses, and they're like, well, the only way this course is going to be valuable is if I make them carry this 220-pound mannequin three miles. And the last one, the last Table 8 that I went to, was such good training. It was at Fort Carson. <clears throat> it was about, she was only about three or four weeks ago. And they're teaching you now how to push antibiotics, how to push, uh, wow. you know, blood clotting. Um, what is it called? It's called transexamic acids, TXA, but it encourages blood clots, um, teaching you how to push all sorts of meds, how to, we're, they're doing whole blood now on the battlefield. They're talking about changing it to a combat paramedic instead of combat medic. So the training now, I think people are starting to figure out you don't have to be this fucking alpha male type and make people sweat to make them learn. If you can make them learn and understand why they're doing what they're doing, 
then you can actually have effective battlefield medicine. Well, and, and we hope to have them on at some point, but uh, the unit that replaced that we replaced, um, they law they had an LT that was a double amputee, and he holds the record for the most like pints of blood, like delivered through a tran- like a combat transfusion. Uh, it was a great article. I'll throw it up under the the podcast links. Um, he, he, he reached out to us and talked to us a little bit and we're going to hopefully talk to some of those guys that are involved in that, but yeah, it was like an army record. They did like blood transfusions in the field, like waiting on, it was like a 14 hours or something of blood transfusion, something crazy. Yeah. Um, and that was just, just, that was a medic. That was a super motivated medic, um, super squared away. And a bunch of guys that were like infantry guys that were like, Hey, yeah, let's do this. Um, you know, so that training goes a long way. You instill confidence in people, and they do incredible things. Um, and I know that the training that I was always the most grateful for was the, you know, the, the anti-hemorrhaging training, the, you know, mm-hmm. knowing what to do with the chest seal, know how to pack a wound, how to wrap a wound. There's about four or five things that if you're confident and you know how to do them well, you can treat 90% of battlefield injuries. Yep. So we definitely appreciate the, the time that you guys took helping us be competent on those those skills and and i think uh it was too easy to get them you know sal and uh burner out there to train you guys because they just loved watching y'all stick npas in each other so (laughs) it was too easy to get some cls training going i Uh, managed to avoid that until i was a cw2 and i was pretty bitter about it when somebody stuck one of those things in me i've uh, never had it done to me thankfully it's awful it's the worst thing i would rather be punched in the face (laughs) i have a couple pre-deployment videos of it I'll see if I can pull them up and send them to y'all. They're pretty funny. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, you, I mean, you spent a lot of time with the admin stuff in the aid station, but we've mentioned a few times that you would relieve the, the medics sometimes to go out on a dismounted patrol. Um, but you, more importantly, as the company medic, um, you went out with us on some of the bigger missions, specifically uh, clearing the horn, which was one of the, our first major battalion, actually it was brigade-level operation, um, to clear the horn of Panjway. Um, so you were out with, you know, Captain Kitching's element all seven, eight days or whatever that was, right? Yeah. I mean, most of the bigger missions, if Captain Kitching was going out and he was going to be out for, you know, more than the couple hours or, or the day patrols, then I would go out there with him. And what uh, what can you tell us about the, the time in the horn? Uh, so the time in the horn was the eye opener for me as a medic. Uh, you know, Sean Brazes, he, uh, you know, losing him, you lose your first patient on the battlefield and you realize like, I don't know, you kind of feel like you didn't take it as seriously as as you should have. And it's not to say that I didn't train or t- take the training seriously, but it's like, it's not real until it actually happens, you know? Uh, so huge eye opener. And then just understanding what my role was as a senior medic. So, you know, in Iraq, I deployed as a uh, Cav Scout medic. Uh, I didn't have a whole company under me. And going into Afghanistan, I, I kind of felt like the company wasn't really, I wasn't responsible for the entire company. I had guys under me that I was responsible for, but I wasn't responsible for an entire company of guys. It didn't feel like that. I mean, I was, but it didn't feel like that. And then when, you know, the horn happened, the fight with, uh, you know, Brazes and, the LT going down, going into the great putt, seeing an entire company of guys in a great putt just like sucking from the heat. You kind of realize like, sh- this is, 
this is a situation where I need to do something because I'm responsible for all these guys. And it's like the first realization that I have, these are my people, all of them, even if I don't talk to them every day, even if they've got their own, you know, platoon medics. So it was, like I said, it was an eye opener. Now, what, what do you recall about, um, you know, braces going down? I know, uh, P- uh, Price spoke briefly about it and, uh, Captain Kitching spoke briefly about it in his podcast with the spear. Um, but were, were you near him when he was hit or were you pretty detached and get the call from kind of a different part in the formation? No. So I was in his formation. They, him and a, a couple other guys had gone over that break in the wall that Cam Kitchen talked about in his podcast. And, uh, I don't know. I was probably like 50 meters away. And, uh, when I was, somebody else had gotten hit, I think it was from third platoon and he had, he, he had gotten either shrapnel or a shot in his shoulder. I can't remember his name. You know, we talked about this before. And I was sitting there smoking a cigarette with this guy after wrapping him up and determining that he didn't need to be evac'd. And then the the, the shots kind of popped off. And I saw our some of our guys pour back through that, that opening in the wall. And then Sean, his dog pulling him up over the wall. And his dog got over through the clearing. And then Sean kind of fell. So he had been shot, he had been hit, and uh, kind of rolled down into that clearing, into that opening. Was he shot before he tried to jump the wall, or do you think he was shot as, as he was on so the he, wall? So he wasn't over? trying to, he wasn't jumping a wall. There was a break in the wall, so it was oh, completely okay. open mm-hmm. right there. Probably, you know, I'm terrible at distance, but I'd say like a, a 15 or 20 meter break in the wall where uh, you could walk through it. There was a little bit of a berm there, mm-hmm. but there was no wall. Oh, okay. So coming over the berm, he got hit. His dog was already over. Uh, and I think, you know, just thinking back on treating him, the dog was trying to pull him through that wall, probably knew what was going on, trying to get him out of there. And as he pulled him up, his plate, his back plate uh, went up to a point where the round could hit. Seems like to me now, and I think it was confirmed, it ricocheted off his pelvic uh, cradle and ended up going into his heart. Uh, but yeah, so he went down and, uh, in, in that berm and I dropped, you know, I was with that guy and I dropped to the ground, you know, take cover, uh, eliminate that silhouette and go low. And it was just training kicking in. Yeah. And the first thing that I said when I, when I hit the ground was I looked at captain kitchen, he looked back at me and I said, is it safe to move up? And medics would understand this, uh, during your table eight trainings, you're taught, uh, the first thing you say it, you know, do we have fire superiority? Is it safe to move up? Can you treat yourself? Uh, can you get to cover? And so I, I asked, is it safe to move up? And it clearly was not. But as soon as I said it, I realized how fucking stupid that was and kind of motivated myself to to move forward. So I moved forward to, to Brazes and, and started to try to treat him and uh, the LT. Uh, LT told me to, to leave him alone <laughs> pretty much. He had that uh, flesh wound, that, that million-dollar wound, so I kind of let him be and moved on to Brazos. And uh, I know that they got that, they got him out of there pretty quick. Uh, and there was, obviously there was the drama with Sicario, who was being extremely protective of uh, of Sean, and Sicario was not your normal military working dog. Mm. You know, that he was he was a good bit more aggressive than most of them. Um, yeah. So it was good that you had, you had Price there to kind of keep him out of your way, but... 
Yeah, Price wrapped his arms around uh, the dog as, you know, I saw the the jaws snapping at my face. And as soon as, as soon as Price wrapped his arms around him and pulled him back, like those jaws just like disappeared. But (laughs) so weird. I mean, that's a very vivid memory in my mind is, is those, those teeth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That that has to stick out to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I mentioned this before, but like, I, I spent time with the military dogs all the time. Like mm-hmm. the handler, it was a great thing for me. And Sean was the first and only handler on that deployment. Was like, no, you can't pet this dog, <laughs> uh, <laughs> even with a muzzle on. He's like, no, don't do it. I was like, okay, fair enough. Um, you know that. So that was. Uh, I can only imagine how terrifying that would have been to have a dog with that kind of <laughs> level of. Uh, excitement, we'll say. Yeah. Um, trying to protect his handler, but I mean, it it sounds like the the treatment for him was, well, you know, you, you did what you could do, and it was just to get him to that next level of care. The hardest thing to do is to try to treat him because the freaking the rounds were coming through that uh opening in the wall. I mean, they all knew we were there. Sure. So between laying on on braces and trying to keep him from getting shot again, which also is stupid. I feel like you know you look back at these things and. You feel like there's a million other things you could have done. Like I could have rolled them out of there or no matter how many things you have in your aid bag, uh, you just, you never feel like uh, you, you did enough. I don't know. It's much more difficult to talk about with uh, like during the interview than. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it kind of echoes the sentiments that, um, that Alex shared about the day that we lost Lux. Um, you know, it, and honestly, it sounds like a very similar wound you know, single gunshot wound, um, no discernible exit. Um, and, uh, you know, people that have spent a lot of time um, in the military and combat zones know that bullets do weird things. Uh, they do extremely, extremely weird things, especially when um, when you get shot. Very unpredictable. Um, yeah, extremely. And it's, you know, you see in the movies, everyone expects that, oh, he got shot and then the the exit hole is going to be on the exact same spot on his body just on the other side and uh, i'm not so sure that that's ever been the case yeah so there was no exit wound that i could find <clears throat> i did a pretty good sweep of his his front side and i think it stayed in him but yeah. i found the hole in the back side there was a really really dark blood coming out of that hole but it was super small they're always yeah. really small and hard to find um and yeah. he kind of was fading in and out uh the whole time so I didn't know at the time that he was going to die, but when he did die, I knew it and chose not to really share with anybody. We put him on the bird like he was going to make it and yeah, tr- try to try to get out of that situation without uh, killing the morale of, of the guys that were there because... Well, you're still in a fight. We're yeah. still in the fight and, you know, even if he wasn't part of our unit, everybody loved everybody who was out there because they all knew we all, we all had each other's back and you don't say he's dead on the battlefield. You say it after. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he was, he was part of the team a hundred percent. You know, the, the EOD guys, the dog handlers, the yep. engineers, Yep. you know, they, in, in many ways we, we treated them as better than the team because we knew that they were adding something that we couldn't add ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and in every case they were always taking on a risk that we weren't taking. Um, you know, the Taliban targeted dogs and dog handlers. They targeted EOD. They targeted engineers. Yeah. Um, I mean, they targeted us too, but, you know, they, they knew that those brought something extra to the battlefield. So, you know, I, I've always, 
um, had a lot of love and respect for the military working dog teams. Um, you know, turned me into a crazy dog nut and that's okay. Uh, but you know, what those guys did, what Sean, what Sean was doing out there for us, um, yeah, I mean, we, we can never repay that. And, uh, you know, we know that you did everything that you could possibly do. You, I mean, that was kind of the, the point of going down that path was like to illustrate that there, there's nothing you can do. Like sometimes like these bullet wounds are, they're not treatable. The best you can do is patch an entry, entry wound and get them on an aircraft as fast as possible. Like he needed surgery, you know, they need that next level of care. Um, and it was the same thing for Luxmore and, um, yeah, I know that was, and it was tough on burner and I imagine it was tough on you too. So, um, you know, I'm sorry. You know, but we got we got word not not long. I probably I think it was later that evening that he didn't make it. Um, but you said you already knew. Yeah. So what? Another one of the most vivid uh, memories is the the way that is. You know, we were out there for a while, so he wasn't completely shaven. Uh, the the sweat on his face and the hair, the short hair of his beard, kind of glistened, and uh, when you're your pupils kind of dilate like right at that moment. And so I did look into his eyes and, and see that happen. And I, I knew then, and that was, that was probably like five minutes before the bird came in. Uh, and you guys got to help me with the name. Um, was it Maddox or, or Haddock? What was Maddox? Maddox. Yeah. So he was kind of there and he was trying to do the whole uh, sternum rub and, and, you know, punch to the groin, try to maintain uh, awareness you know, yeah yeah try to get a, an idea of, of how conscious he was and i mean at that point it was i had already known but you know he probably knew too but the things that guys will do i mean he was at this you gotta remember at this point we were still exposed to fire and he's sitting there exposing himself trying to keep this guy like conscious and uh you know, keep them alive. So there is no, you know, you talk about being afraid of that dog and you're not really afraid of anything when it, when somebody's life is, is at stake. You're, you're more afraid of losing somebody than you are of a dog biting you or getting shot by a bullet. Uh, the, your worst nightmare is just losing one of your friends. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it's just complete tunnel vision. You're not even, at some point you're not even thinking about the fact you're being shot at anymore. Yeah. And you guys know the same. I mean, you guys did the same thing, so it's no different. It's a little different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that, that day was pretty pretty bad for third platoon. I mean, you had uh, Brazos, you had a couple other guys get hit or wounded. It was a hot day. Um, it's probably 130 degrees. There's no, we were in a part of Panjway, there was no tree cover. It was pretty much open desert. Um, I mean, some little, you know, orchards and stuff like that. But, um, the result was that after that big firefight, like we had to consolidate and like get some rest. Um, cause guys were at the verge of, we were at the verge of losing the entire, like an entire platoon. So we, we had actually had that heat casually right before the firefight started. Then the firefight happened and on the left side of that wall. I ended up lining up about eight or nine guys and having them take their helmets off. And yeah, it's pretty fucked up. It's in the middle of a firefight. They were behind a wall. They had cover, but they were going to die from the heat. Like it was, it was fucking nasty. And so you got these guys sitting there, uh, you know, pants, 
or boots on blast, helmet off, and then helicopters dropping fucking water bombs on us. Those water, those cases of water bottles, and I was kind of, you know, myself and a couple of the other guys from headquarters were darting around the field just collecting up water bottles so we could take it to these guys that were just sucking because it was yeah. so fucking hot. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of culminated in uh, an extremely iconic photograph. And if anybody has the full resolution photo of this, please send it to us. Um, of most of third platoon, pretty much the entirety of third platoon inside of one great putt. Um, and everyone is just absolutely wrecked. Everybody has an IV in their arm. Everyone, you can see it on their face. They're just completely defeated. Like I can feel the picture. It's so, it's so surreal. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of it, there's Captain Kitching. He's squatting and he's looking around. Um, and you go, you can play whatever you want in your head about what he's thinking. It's like looking around at his guy is just a complete de- utter devastation. Um, but it's really just an iconic photograph to say, like, th- this is what this is what war is. This is young guys pushed to their absolute limit, and they're and all of them are willing to continue on. They just need a break, you know. So you, we pump them with fluids, we give them some water, we give them an hour to take a nap, and it was it was about an hour, hour and a half, and then they were up, their gear was on, and they were pushing on. Um, it's. You know, I've seen a lot of really iconic war photos, and it, it ranks right up there. And I think you said you might have taken that photo. Yeah, so it took a couple while I was there. Um, you know, we got to that great putt and uh, Burner and uh, Sal, and then we had some first class, first class uh, dash in the um, MRAP, uh, you know, kicking fluids out of the back, birds dropping fluids off, and we were just carrying them in there and trying to get everybody hooked up to an IV line um, in between giving people IVs and talking to my medics, make sure they were okay. I was taking pictures because I don't know, you're in that, you're in that moment. You recognize it for what it is. I'm glad you had the presence of mind to do so. But I don't know if that picture is mine. I won't take credit for it because I have no idea, man. (laughs) Yeah, for sure, man. It's it's an iconic one for our deployment, but like Curtis said, it encapsulates a thousand other deployments too, you know, in terms of just what it's like to just suck and to be there and slog through that stuff. So it's a hell of a picture. It's right up there with the Smothers picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, you put those two together. Whew, that Smothers mm. picture. And I'll probably we'll throw that one up too. But uh, just kind of, it's that million yard stare. It's way beyond a thousand yard stare. Mm-hmm. Just uh, <laughs> complete. Just, and what's crazy about the Smothers picture is there's a lot of going on in the background. You know, there's people smoking cigarettes. There's people walking around. But then he, like... He's not, he's the only one that's not like sitting or relaxing. He's just standing there. Hmm. And like some Afghan guy's giving him a hug or something. <laughs> and he's just like, There's another one of Jay, I think, sitting on a bench right outside the schoolhouse over there where Third Platoon lived, smoking a cigarette after a mission. Do you guys have that one? I don't. And he's have super that one. sweaty. He's in that fucking shirt. What was that shirt called? Like the combat, combat shirt. shirt. Yeah. Uh, he's got that on and, you know, just soaked in sweat. And, just looking defeated and smoking a cigarette sitting there on the bench. I'll have to see if I can find it. I have a hard drive full of shit from uh, Afghanistan. And that's, a, that's another good one. That's one that I'll, I'll look at when I'm going through my, you know, yeah. taking a stroll down memory lane and I'll see that and be like, fuck. It, remind, it reminds you that it wasn't all, you know, fun and games. It wasn't, uh, wasn't all Gustav shots and Apache rockets. It was, uh, <laughs> there's a human toll as well. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we came back from the horn, um, 
and obviously the horn was the first of many you know traumatic events for our for our company you know with many many firefights many many other wounded and uh, unfortunately a, f- a few other that we lost um you know it was it's an interesting dynamic as you as the 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 lead medic and also the medics kind of belonging to the companies um now yeah i like how you phrase it the companies belong to them um and i actually kind of prefer that but you know when these events would happen how would you kind of work with with those guys to try to either uh help them get past it if they were struggling with it or help them learn from those experiences so that everybody could benefit from from those experiences yeah so you know like i said before i, I don't think that i helped them uh any i don't think i helped them as much as you guys helped each other so allowing the medics to embed completely in the in their platoons to sleep with them to to do the everyday you know bullshit that you could do when you weren't on patrol and of course you know patrol builds that brotherhood too but uh just creating that separation from the aid station uh made it so that i think that helped their mental health more than anything uh but we did do a couple things you know like i said before we had cam Cuthrell there so he he was always there to to talk to him and he had the experience on the line to know what to say uh we did hot washes uh after we treated uh any sort of casualties in the aid station. Anytime that there was a casualty and the medics were were on the cop and not, you know, either fresh back from a patrol or getting ready to go out on one, we would do an all call for medics to come to the aid station so that they could, like I said before, use those experience points to level up. Uh, and then uh, we would, you know, we were best friends. I mean, Salvador, Doan, uh, Burner, Todd for the little bit of time he was there. They were, they were all my best friends as well. And so treating them as such, not being that NCO, that hard ass and allowing them to, uh, to feel safe with whatever they, whatever they felt like, whenever they felt like they had to say something to me, they didn't have to worry about the rank. They could come and say it. And it was, it was safe. It was all right. Uh, I think that that helped a lot with those guys. But again, I think being embedded with y'all and uh, being able to develop the relationships they did in that schoolhouse is uh, what made the biggest difference. And I mean, what were some some lessons that you guys learned as you continued to treat casualties and um, run into these you know different kinds of wounds? You know, single amps, double amps, gunshot wounds, lots of TBIs. Um, you know, were there any lessons learned that came out of those initial injuries that kind of helped later on? So, uh, you get faster for sure, sure. just from doing it. Sure. Uh, but as we treated in the aid station, we would refine how our beds are set up. You guys know we had those two litters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had lines run over the litters with um, class eight hanging over it, and that class eight would be prepped so that you could easily, you know, snatch it off the line, open it as as quick as humanly possible, and and get it on the body to uh to get that intervention going uh so just running through especially the scenarios with the uh the local nationals really prepared us for when we had those those nightmare scenarios where you know trucks were pulling up full of bravo company guys that needed to be treated because when that happened uh you know we were ready to go so just constantly reworking that those tables so that uh we could be as fast as humanly possible and as efficient and to to treat smart, I think uh, 
it, it made a huge difference in the end. I mean, you know, when you talk about nightmare scenarios, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the day that we lost uh, Sergeant Swindle was the definition, uh, especially for, for the aid station. Um, and honestly, if I can't imagine what we would have done if that we hadn't had quick access to an aid station. You know, without going into too much gruesome detail, can you kind of tell us what happened that day? Yeah. Um, you know, so the trucks pulled up and we got four casualties, uh, one KIA out of the trucks. <clears throat> uh, so some amputations and stuff going on there. Uh, we were able to triage outside, uh, bring them into the aid station, get them on those tables immediately. And again, the, you know, 11 Bravos were, were there carrying and helping. And I actually did that day tell three or four 11 Bravos to get out mm-hmm. because we had too many guys in there. I mean, that's your brother on the table. You want to help. Uh, but we had to, we had to clear, clear the, clear the room a little bit. Uh, without going into gruesome detail, it was the guys that needed to be treated were treated and they were evac in a very timely manner. Um, nobody else died. Nobody died that, uh, wasn't going to die anyway. So there, you know, we were able to save lives and, uh, man, at, at the end of the day that, that day, the aid station, it took us hours to clean up. There was blood everywhere. It was crazy. But without the uh, the training and, the, and those hot washes and the refinement that had happened before, it would not have gone off that way. So we were thankful to be allowed to treat the locals. And that was something that Price mentioned, too, that I think was pretty profound, was that if that event had happened early in the deployment, we, mm-hmm. we might have been caught with our pants down a little bit. Yeah, because we had a you know a neck through and through, um, which th- I don't know for sure, but I think it nicked his um, uh, carotid, uh, which you know is a lot of blood. There's a lot of blood if you get hit anywhere from the neck up anyway, just because it's such a vascular area. And then that on top of one KIA, and in the way that he was a KIA made it difficult. And then yeah. the uh, the other two guys, the amputee, and then the other you know minor minor wounds it was just it could have been over overloading uh redefined mass cal yeah uh but because it happened later in the employment deployment and we were had that experience it, it went off a lot better than it could have i mean and that's that was probably the the extent of a mass cal that our aid station could have handled um you know in terms of the number of casualties we would have had to start bringing in line medics and People would have been working on people outside of the aid station, so it was. I am. I'm glad that that was as bad as it got in terms of what we had to treat. Um, and we've we've talked about um, the day that Sergeant Swindle was killed a little bit, and it still deserves its own conversation in terms of the entire story. But just so there's not so much, um, you know, suspense and unknown information about it. Essentially, what happened is while the vehicle was parked um, not far outside the gate, it was it had a direct hit from an RPG to the side. Um, one in a million shot. It punctured a a, a seam in the armor. Right after missing the net, it missed an RPG net. Went right through the RPG net. Um, punctured a seam in the armor. If it hit almost anywhere else on the vehicle, it wouldn't have penetrated. Um, but it did unfortunately penetrate into the crew compartment and yeah. caused all those casualties. So, um, you know, it was, it was it was a pretty bad day for Bravo Company. And, uh, you know, Luke and I were out on the mission when it happened. 
um, you know, but there were a lot of guys that were were not because this was the point in the deployment we were starting to be kind of short on guys. So you know we couldn't field entire platoons. So there were there was a decent number of guys back on the on the cop. Um, so that that brought the trauma that a lot of guys had only been seeing out on patrols yeah. um, to the cop for the first time for a lot of guys, and that was uh, it was that was tough for some guys. That being said, like nobody uh, performed under expectations. Yeah, even even the guys that hadn't seen it, the headquarters guys, like they would they would swarm between the, the, the talk and the aid station, like ants and they were always on mission and doing what they were supposed to do. So everybody always reacted admirably. Yeah. That's one thing I always appreciated about our, our headquarters element because a lot of times in infantry and it's the, the headquarters only gets a bad name. It's the work. Well, that's where they send all the shit bags or that's where, um, the people on the way out of the army go or something, but ours were phenomenal. They picked yeah. the, best and brightest guys um, to do the jobs out there. And all of them were competent and capable of going out on patrols and they did go out on patrols. Yep. Um, so if you were an 11 Bravo in our headquarters element, that did not keep you out of the, uh, that did not keep you inside the wire. And those guys fought as hard as anybody in the, in the uh, platoons. Yeah, was, uh, well, that's one of the things that we've talked about a little bit with, with price is that everybody at some point in the deployment, everybody was getting into something, you know. <laughs> so even even the cooks got into to a couple of things, a couple of rounds, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. I, I do believe uh, sometimes they shot at us. They shot at us. <laughs> Hoxie, I'm a little bit bitter about the time you almost killed me. It's okay. We're <laughs> but cool the now. Food, the food was always so much better after their first uh, run-in with the Taliban. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so... Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's probably, it's not that unusual that everybody on a cop comes back with a combat badge, but, you know, it would, it, given a different set of circumstances, a different set of individuals, we could have totally had people not come back with a combat badge, but everybody pulled their weight. Yeah. Everybody pulled their weight on that one. Um, you know, that would, then that kind of leads into something we talked about in the pre-interview was that as, as we came back, um, Everybody knew that what Bravo Company did was different from what the rest of 164 did um, because we were detached and because we were with 123 and because we were in Pan- in, in the horn of Panjway, hmm. we experienced a lot more. And, you know, 164 did have some instances. They did have a couple ID strikes. Um, the guys at Charlie Company saw a, a fair amount of um, engagements out there. Um, but when we came back, there was, there was definitely something, okay, Bravo Company saw stuff and we saw a lot less and there was just kind of this weird vibe and i know when i came back i just i didn't really we didn't i didn't talk about the deployment with anybody that wasn't at spurwengar because there was just kind of this like unspoken um truce like hey we're not going to talk about it um was that was it kind of same thing with the medics right before we left afghanistan i talked to my guys about being humble uh and i don't think i really it was something i had to say they were humble guys anyway. They right. had tons of humility. <clears throat> but um, when we did go back, you know, they they were kind of on the same page as you guys. It was something you just didn't have to really talk about. And it, it was brought up, of course, because, you know, these privates that, uh, that didn't have their CMB, that didn't have their, their CIB or... Um, hadn't seen much out there, were sitting at CAP the whole time, wanted, they want to know. 
they want to hear about it. <clears throat> it's directly related to their job. Of course they want to know. Um, so when we got back to the medical platoon, we, sh- we shared with them. We let them know. Yeah. And we used lessons learned um, humbly. But we, uh, the way that we were treated, we were treated a lot different than before we, we, we left uh, for Afghanistan. And it was hard to leave Fort Stewart. I left Fort Stewart to go to Walter Reed uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. That's and, right. I forgot about that. Yeah, and that was actually while we were in Afghanistan, I chose that duty station so I could be with the guys that we sent back over there. Damn. Dennison was there, and I met up with him. Captain Kitchen and uh, First Sergeant came out. But yeah, so back on track, we um, we were treated, you know, like heroes. I mean, we were you know among heroes, but uh, they weren't people weren't bitter. They just wanted to know, and we were treated really well and. It was tough to leave because you go back into a pool of people that don't know your name, you know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't, I don't know if it was your experience that was the same Luke, but I know I, I felt when we came back that, um, we, we never felt like we were in competition with the other guys, but just that knowing that they hadn't had the same experience mm-hmm. that we didn't have, we didn't have the common ground that we had before the deployment with, with like the guys from Alpha Company or yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like you know, there wasn't a sense. I mean, I, I didn't care. I was like, I was getting out of yeah, so, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't sit around and think about it. I was like, see y'all I'm out. But yeah. there's one little story that actually I think encapsulates it all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is we were doing the um, what is that thing called when you get back reintegration? Like reintegration. Yeah. yeah. So we were like halfway through into reintegration and the whole battalion was gathered outside the building. <laughs> we we're about to go in and we were kind of like a cluster around, you know, waiting for the doors to open or whatever the thing was. And a freaking transformer blew on the light pole and it like, you know, so they had an explosion and literally every <laughs> single person in Bravo company like ducked down and started to hit the dirt <laughs> and the rest of the battalion was just like, what, what happened? You know, <laughs> so, yeah. That says it. That's pretty much says it all right there. Like every every head in Bravo was like getting getting down and started looking for M4s. You know. Yeah, I remember that. Now that you mentioned that was it, it was it was made extra funny by like the comments that the first, uh, our first sergeant said afterwards. Mm-hmm. And uh, he I can't, he made he made some smart ass comments, <laughs> basically telling the rest of the battalion that they hadn't been to combat. <laughs> he made well, some smart. He's like, that's like right, him. that's Bravo Company. They they're still in war or something like that. <laughs> it's some corny thing like that. It was something corny like that, yeah. which you know normally I wouldn't find something like that funny, but in the moment I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah. And it just, you know, it's just a set of different experiences and no, no two deployments are the same as Brandon and I, his military history can speak to that, you know? Yeah. They're all different. Everyone's different. And And I I appreciate that everyone had the maturity to recognize that for the most part, you know, they're like, Hey, we're not going to law Lord, like hold this over alpha company's head because you know, a different set of circumstances. It could have been us at calf and them at Sperlgar. So, um, I think most people were pretty cognizant that it was just, hey, be. Uh, I agree, be humble. It's and it's uh, it's a piece of advice that I all I received myself a couple of years later when I received my award. For, uh, and Captain Kitchen called me, uh, and he said, "Hey, it's been approved." Yada yada yada. He's like, "Just remember, be humble." Um, and that's something that I've taken to extreme degrees. <laughs> Um, you know, especially when talking about my military service and it's, you know, I'd, I'd rather be seen as the person that was ex- excessively humble and soft-spoken than someone that was a braggart. 
Well, I mean, being humble makes your voice louder and you want a loud voice so that people know the story and you guys are, you know, this is what y'all are doing. You're sharing the story with everybody. Mm -hmm. And if you were, were not humble people, I don't think you'd be doing this podcast. Yeah. I was, uh, I was talking to my brother today about how it's been really weird for me to actually talk about all this stuff because I just, I kept it all stitched up for so long, even from my immediate family members, you know, like not even stories, you know, not even like the, the, oh, at one time we did this, like just none of, none of anything. Yeah. Because I never wanted to be that guy. You know, that was always my thing. When I went into the deployment, because we knew it was going to be bad, I was like, this is not going to define me. Like, I'm not going to be that guy. And uh, I carried that through for a long time until we started podcast. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think it's really, I really appreciate the fact that you had the foresight as a leader, but also as a friend and a, and a fellow soldier to kind of uh, preempt your return with that message for your guys. Because like you said, that carries weight when you, when you demonstrate humility about your service, especially when it was as harsh as Afghanistan was for us. Like that's a classy act, classy move. And, uh, like you said, silence speaks words or silence speaks volumes, you know, it does. and, uh, if you're out the VFW, the guy sitting around eating fried chicken and drinking Bud Light and flapping to the jaws probably didn't see a fucking thing, <laughs> you know, yeah. and he was on the USS Indianapolis on their summer tour in 1997. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And when the guy who, um, who you know went the entire semester and you find out in the last week of classes that he also was a veteran maybe he's seen some shit you know so humility is an important thing that a lot of military service members don't get bred into them as, as much as they should especially as our fighting force transitions away from a large population of combat veterans i think it's even more important mm -hmm. um yeah because there's there's a lot of guys i mean brandon you're how, how many of your soldiers have cmbs yeah you don't really see i mean you don't even see uh patches on the right right sleeve anymore hmm. yeah i mean it's the the military is changing and if you weren't a humble person you probably wouldn't be in the position that you're in either you know it's if you if you were oh i got a cmb i'm this badass <laughs> you know no, no one wants to work for that guy no one wants to work next to that guy yeah um it's going to be, it's the same thing in the infantry ranks and it's the same thing in aviation ranks. Um, people will appreciate that badge on your chest much more if you pretend like it's not there. Yeah. Nobody wants to be that guy. And, and, uh, you know, that's probably the guy who was shitting himself while the rounds were flying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of truth to that too. Well, Brandon, what we always kind of close these things out is give you a chance to speak your mind. Um, you know, if there's something we have not covered or something you want to say or something you want to address, this is kind of your chance to say whatever you want. You know, the floor is 100% yours. Well, I don't really have a whole lot to say, I guess. I mean, pretty much covered everything that I I think people need to hear about. It's good to, <clears throat> it's good to share Sean's story and uh, my guy's story. I mean, the important people out there were definitely the junior medics, man. Like they, Like you said... Very, very few breaks. They were out there with you guys nonstop. Uh, I handled some of the logistics stuff. And um, one thing we didn't get to talk about, I guess, was uh, just the, the medic's job as morale officers out there. Yeah, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so just, um, you know, we talked about ordering um, from like Soldiers Angels, uh, getting those packages in for the guys, uh, being able to cut, cut guys' hair. Uh, <clears throat> Playing video games with guys, playing board games with guys, talking to guys, uh, 
we didn't have a behavioral health specialist out there. So it was kind of on those, those junior medics to do that. So, uh, I would say to anybody listening who is a medic and ever finds himself in this situation, just remember your only job isn't to heal, uh, physically, but to become, become friends with every single guy, even the guy that you don't like in your platoon and make sure that they are, uh, mentally sound and, and ready to fight because, it's kind of an unspoken job of medics. You got you got to be everybody's best friend. Cool. Yeah. And absolutely. I always say uh, there there's three people in the platoon or in the company you never piss off: medics, cooks, and supply. Yeah. <laughs> See, for yeah. us, it's just the cooks and supply. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Mainly supply. Yeah. <laughs> Bolts don't fly, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's I'm glad I'm glad you remembered to bring that up because it's uh. When you're a private, especially when you're new and you're young and you're at war, you know, your chain of command is terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, you are, you are scared of your, your team leader. You're terrified of your squad leader. You're absolutely petrified of your platoon sergeant and you don't even want to look at your first sergeant. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the medics are like this outside force that is around that you know don't really answer to those people. <laughs> um, not directly at least. So when they come in and they shoot the shit with you and they bullshit, you can feel like a normal person again. Mm. Um, so I always appreciated the efforts that yeah. you guys made, cutting hair, inviting us to go play board games or to smoke pit or, you know, I don't know if ha- asking us to smoke with you was probably great for our health, but <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> hey, um, we did too. Yeah, cool. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy man. You got life to live, so we definitely appreciate you taking some time and hanging out with us and catching up, man. Oh yeah, man! Y'all keep doing what you're doing. People need to hear it, and uh, I look forward to the uh, the future episodes you guys got to offer. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate. It. Yep. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pandroid Podcast. If you liked what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star review. New episodes every Monday on all major podcast platforms, Facebook, and YouTube. Visit www.thepangewaypodcast.com for more information.